Welcome to the Peter King Podcast, presented by Salesforce. So happy you can join us in a week with, there's just too much news to discuss. So we're not going to have a 50-minute podcast. It's going to actually be five hours. So just settle in. Because, you know, who's what else do you have today or this week, rather than all of the immense news around the National Football League? Miles, welcome. I hope you've got a lot of voice because we got a lot to discuss. Oh, uh, yeah, we certainly do. And, you know, I had to do an extra half hour yesterday after uh, the news of Frank Reich's firing came down. And then came the even more surprising news that Jeff Saturday is going to now be the interim head coach of the Indianapolis Colts. And, uh, yeah, that is there's a lot going on in Indianapolis. I mean, we could do, we could probably do three hours just on what's going on there. <laughs> all right. So let me run down the pod. All right. First of all, we are going to have Stephen Holder, uh, the excellent uh, beat man who covers the Indianapolis Colts for ESPN.com. He will be this week's guest. For all of you who were tuning in, because in my column this week in Football Morning Amer in America, I said we'd have Michael Zagaris. Um, the superb sports photographer who's got a book out with some incredible pictures in it. We'll uh, delay that. We'll have that uh, up here in two or three weeks. But um, we're going to have Stephen Holder on mid-pod to discuss all things Colts. In the back half of our podcast, we are going to discuss the Ravens, who are six and three. They've won three in a row. An incredibly impressive performance on Monday night football. And they have, in the next three weeks, a bye, Carolina, and Jacksonville. So if you love the Cincinnati Bengals, you just got to be careful. There's no assuming you're going to win the NFC North. And uh, I'll tell you this. It was tough going to the Super Bowl last year, playing all on the road. Well, Bengals might have to do it again this year. But again, we'll see. Plenty of clock left in this NFL season. We'll also discuss the Bills being in a little trouble uh, and also Josh Allen's elbow concerns. Mike McCarthy returns to the scene of his prime. Dallas goes to Green Bay this weekend. We'll talk about that. The Jets. Six and three with a defense that can play with anyone. Uh, we'll also talk about the Minnesota Vikings. You know, it's amazing. The Minnesota Vikings, seven and one. Not a lot of people are talking about them. Seems like every game is a struggle, but you know what? In the NFL, as one wise old owl once said, a win is a win. We'll also talk about the Philadelphia Eagles sitting there on top from their perch atop the NFL at 8-0. And we'll talk about Tom Brady, who's on pace to throw for 200,000 yards by age 65. Uh, and we'll talk about what so far has been the incredible career, or the incredible year, excuse me, this year so far of Tyreek Hill. And uh, I wrote in my column on Monday that, Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddell are the first receiver combination ever in the NFL to be on pace to combine for a 200-yard per game average in a, in, in a season for two receivers. So 
a lot to get to, but I will start with the Indianapolis Colts in their very, very strange decision on Monday um, to fire, not just to fire Frank Reich, which really wasn't all that strange. Um, the performance on on Sunday in New England was god-awful, and it wasn't just Sam Ellinger. It was that offensive line, which is just terrible, surprisingly. Uh, you know, after spending all that money and all that draft capital on the offensive line, they are they are plumbing the depths right now. Um, and it wasn't just firing Reich, which I think was not that much of a shock. The owner of the Colts, Jim Irsay, is an impetuous guy at times. I'm not even sure that was this is that impetuous, quite honestly, because you just can't be as hopeless as the Colts looked on Sunday. But I think the hiring of Jeff Saturday, I'm just going to say a couple of things about it. You're right. Everybody is correct when they say that the Jeff Saturday ascension to be the interim coach with, you can hear it in Jim Irsay's voice after that bizarre press conference on Monday night in Indianapolis. You can hear it in Jim Irsay's voice. He wants Jeff Saturday to be the full-time coach of his team. You can just hear it. Yes. You know, yes. and I think unless this is a debacle, he's got a heck of a chance to be the full-time coach of this team. And for all those who would say, hey, in the 61 years since or in the last 60 years, there has never been a coach uh, who hasn't played in college football or pro football. And I am going to be on board to be very critical of this decision. But I just want to say three things about Jeff Saturday. Number one, there's an old NFL Films clip of Jeff Saturday on the sidelines arguing vociferously with Peyton Manning. Mm -hmm. And that, it was very impressive to me. Could you imagine, uh, you, you know, the center of the Green Bay Packers or of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers or in his day of the New Orleans Saints arguing like that with Drew Brees or Tom Pay Tom Brady or uh, you know or 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 Aaron Rodgers, I really can't. That's number one. So I think he, relatively speaking, is unafraid. Number two, I'm going to go back in time eleven years. Okay, I was covering, and I did not cover it every day. Albert Breer did an incredible job of covering the labor dispute every day in 2011, uh, in the middle of the summer. Uh, but, but anyway, I just remember right near the end in a hotel in Washington, DC, where the, they were in the, it was like 1155 on the clock of these negotiations. I saw deep in a corner, Roger Goodell and Jeff Saturday having a beer, uh, no D Smith, no uh, any, but no other negotiators from the NFL. Roger Goodell and Jeff Saturday having a beer, and 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 that interested me. That it came down to two people, basically at the end, discussing where these negotiations were. A day or two later, they had a deal. But so, 
I just will say that I think Jeff Saturday is going to understand that everyone is going to be looking at him like, what a joke this is. What an absolute total joke. You know, that they bring in a guy who's never coached in the NFL, who has never coached in college football, ever. And you're going to have immense skepticism. He knows it. He knows exactly what everybody is thinking. This is the dumbest decision in the history of decisions. He also knows that everybody is looking at this coaching staff, which has two former head coaches on it, veteran coaches. Gus Bradley, John Fox. Um, and and why in the world is he getting the job over one of these veteran guys who could steer the ship in the last two months of this disastrous season? Um, so th there's all that. And Miles, I'm going to just ask you, even with everything I just said, I believe this was an impetuous, wrong decision because it's going to be difficult i believe for jeff saturday to stand in front of a room of 53 players who i'm told really revered frank reich and absolutely had not given up on him even though they were playing poorly i think it's going to be very difficult for him to harness the energy of that room and to make those guys play hard and also to make that coaching staff believe in him. That's the most interesting thing to me is the coaching staff element of all of this, be because I don't know exactly what is going to go on offensively, right? Who is putting together the offensive game plan? We don't even know. I mean, as we sit here recording this at 9.15-ish Eastern here on Tuesday morning, we don't know who their offensive coordinator is because they fired Frank Reich on Monday, yes, but last week they fired Marcus Brady, who was the former offensive coordinator. And no, he wasn't calling plays, but that man had a lot to do with the game plan and implementing the game plan. And to me, now, I, I read this. I read a lot of stuff out of Indianapolis over the last, I don't know, 24 hours. And one writer said this, and I wish I could remember exactly who it was. But this move just speaks to being an unserious move by an unserious franchise. Whenever you have a situation where somebody is going to come into the building who has never coached at the college or NFL level, whose only coaching experience has been in high school, who's never implemented a game plan before. That to me is the most concerning aspect of all of this. I mean, how are they supposed to get the most out of Sam Ellinger when you don't have an offensive philosophy? You don't know who's going to call the plays. You don't know what kind of plays you even want to run. I mean, it just, it's bizarre. And I'll tell you, Peter, I, I, I love watching the press conference last night from Jim Ursay and Chris Ballard and Jeff Saturday in part because it was the most fun I've ever had watching a press conference because it was that bizarre. I mean, I'm telling you, I'm like recording clips of it and sending them to my friends and being like, Hey, yeah, this is like when your buddy tells you, you know, don't go talk to that girl at the bar anymore. And Jim Ursay saying like, man, I don't, you know, Michael Jordan took how many shots and you know, he lost this many games. And it's like, what are you talking about? Michael Jordan didn't play football and you're talking about this game, but it's that game and it's this and it's that. And I, 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 my head was exploding, but this move right here 
is something that is going to be criticized for years and years and years to come, I think, because it, like, like I said, it's an unserious move by an unserious franchise at the end of the day. Here's the thing. If they don't win three to five games down the stretch of this season, which is a tough, tough ask considering yeah. let me let me let me run down their schedule, by the way. I'll run down their schedule the rest of the way, which by which which includes a Pittsburgh Indianapolis Monday night game. That ought to be oh, no. a joy. And oh, I love no. I can't wait to hear oh. I can't wait to hear the ESPN talking heads before that game you know, as to what they're going to say. They have been, I would say, measured in their analysis. I would call it. Of course. Measured, you know, because obviously it's a colleague. But here's their schedule. At Las Vegas, home to the Philadelphia Eagles, home to Pittsburgh, at Dallas, a bye to try to make sense of it all, at Minnesota, Chargers at home, at the Giants, and then Houston at home. And look, you know, just look at that schedule. You know, first of all, Philadelphia, Dallas, Minnesota, they're going to be anywhere between, I would say, what, eight and 14-point underdogs in all of those games Probably. But, but uh, you know, there's that part of it. And the other part I would say is, look, Miles, I admire Jeff Saturday for saying at this press conference when he was asked what he thought when Jim Ursay called him. He said, and I quote, shocked would be an understatement. I'll be frank. I asked Mr. Ursay, Tell me why I'm a candidate you would consider in any role to do this, end quote. So, you know, Jeff Saturday is not thinking, oh, well, I've been waiting for somebody to call me to take me off the high school sidelines where I have been a coach. So Jeff Saturday understands that the world believes that this is the dumbest decision in the history of decisions, as I said. And he knows that he's going to have to prove to a lot of people that he has some business being there. I mean, I just, Peter, man, I, I don't know. It, it's just so freaking bizarre. I like, and I don't think it's Jeff Saturday's fault. I respect him for trying right. to make the best out of the situation. Of course, you're going to make the best out of the situation. But like I said, I mean, he is about as overmatched as you could possibly be from the standpoint of who is implementing the game plan, right? That's what the head coach does. It's not just because this is one of the things that like stood out to me about this press conference. Yeah, it seemed like. Jim Ursay was basically saying, yeah, the head coach's job is to be a motivator. And I was like, that's not really it. There's a lot right. that goes into game planning. 
right? It's not just, oh yeah, you know, I'm gonna sit down at my PlayStation and turn on the game and then run the same three plays the entire time. And then maybe I'll beat the, the either the computer or some person online that I beat, you know, because that's just the way it, like that's, that's not what happens here. Game plans get implemented starting early on in the week. The coaches have to figure out what they think is the best way to beat another team. And then they right. then install that over the course of Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. They make adjustments. You know, you have different periods of red zone. How do you schedule things out? I mean, that, that's one thing that Jeff Saturday's never done. How do you schedule the day? How do you make sure the travel is right in coordination with the operations uh, director or coordinator, whatever they happen to call it within that franchise? I mean, there are just so many different little elements that I just, I feel like Jim Ursay is kind of overlooking here when you say, oh yes, that's what this head coach, this interim head coach is going to be. And the other part about this is that there was just some big level of defiance from both Jim Ursay and also Chris Ballard which I kind of, I, what Chris Ballard was saying about, oh, you know, you guys have been kicking the mess out of me about not drafting a wide receiver, and now our offensive line stinks too. And it's like, well, yeah, there are no real good playmakers at receiver aside from Michael Pittman. And now, you know, the way you've constructed the team is very much failing. And, uh, you know, Jim Irsay is saying, yeah, I imagine that Ballard's going to be around for 2023. There's no question in my mind or whatever. But, I mean, it's not like last week he wasn't saying, that Frank Reich was also safe. So there are just so many elements to this that it's just like, what in the world is going on? And I don't know, Peter, I mean, you've obviously been doing this a lot longer than I have, but I just, I've never seen anything like this. And I, there's a reason why it's unprecedented, right? Uh, sometimes things are outside the box because that's where they're supposed to be. And that just keeps replaying through my mind. Anytime I keep seeing or hearing anything about the Colts over the last 24 hours. Three other quick points, and then we'll take a break. Um, number one, the guy who Jeff Saturday needs to appoint um, his play caller and offensive coordinator is uh former CFL head coach named Scott Milanovic. He coached Toronto and Montreal in the CFL. He's been a, a quarterback's coach at both the Jaguars and uh, the Indianapolis Colts, where he is currently. He works day-to-day -day with Sam Ellinger, has worked with Matt Ryan. So he he's really about the only guy, I think, who Jeff Saturday can turn to. That's number one. Number two, I'm really curious... Look, there is a fire alarm going on. There is a desperate feel to what Jim Irsay did. And I'm just really surprised that one of the things that Jeff Saturday said was, okay, first thing we're going to do is Matt Ryan is back at starting quarterback. I don't know how you think that Sam Ellinger's got a better chance to beat Las Vegas on Sunday than Matt Ryan does. I, I don't I don't know how that's possible. Well, they are the Raiders and they've blown three leads of 17 points or more. So, I mean, I'm not counting the Colts out this week. I'm not counting them out at all. But uh, who gives you a better chance to win on, on Sunday? No, you're right. Sam Ellinger right. or Matt Ryan, who's thrown for nine jillion yards in the NFL. And I know <laughs> that Matt Ryan's first six or seven weeks were a debacle. I get it. I get it. But, and the last thing, 
And this is a weird thing to think about. Last thing I think is this really for anybody like me who really gave Jim Ursay a lot of credit for ripping into Daniel Snyder and for yes. questioning Daniel Snyder's ownership and basically saying, we need to look at whether Daniel Snyder continues to be an owner in this league. And he's the only person to call him out. This sort of kind of reduces his credibility. It just does, <laughs> you know, because everybody is thinking, who's this, you know, who's the crazy uncle sitting over in the corner who appointed a franchise hero who's never coached at, at any level uh, above high school, uh, the head coach of an NFL team that's in crisis. So I don't know. Those are three thoughts. Miles, I, uh, I, I don't really know what else to say, but we're going to listen to Stephen Holder, who I've got great respect for uh, over the years covering the NFL. And he's been in the middle of this mess in Indianapolis. He was there Monday night. Uh, wrote a very cogent, good wrap-up of where this franchise is. So let's go and listen to Stephen Holder talk about the debacle of Jeff Saturday being named the interim coach of the Indianapolis Colts. So Stephen Holder, we're recording this on Tuesday morning after one of the strangest days, maybe the strangest day, since a Mayflower moving van took the Colts from Baltimore to Indianapolis in 1984. That's a long time ago. That's 38 years ago. But this was an incredible day. I, I want to, first of all, ask you, you wake up in Indianapolis this morning. What is the Colts fan thinking this morning? There's kind of a split, and if if social media is any indication, or you know, and I think it is, there's kind of a split, and that split is this: there are some folks who I think are taking taken by Jeff Saturday's legacy and his 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 fame locally. Certainly, he still has commercials uh, running in the Indianapolis area. He's been a fixture here. He never really was never a fixture. It hasn't been so there are some people who who are taking to that and gravitating to this and saying, well, we love Jeff Saturday. Let's go. And I understand that, right? They are, however, certainly that segment is, is removing a big part of the equation from this, which is the fact that he's never done this. And so there's that other segment of fans who are saying, okay, look, I love the Colts. I love Jeff Saturday, but what? So I don't think there's really any middle ground. I don't think there are a lot of people saying, yeah, I'm not sure, but let's see. I, I think they're either all the way in or they're all the way on the other side of the spectrum saying, what are we doing? So we'll see. Uh, somebody will be right. Somebody will be wrong. Steven, you were on hand on Monday night for the press conference introducing Jeff Saturday. Um, many observations. I think people who did not know the meaning of the word quartile now know the meaning of that word. But I wonder, how did you, as somebody who's sitting in the middle of that, how would you describe the scene of that weird, weird, weird press conference? Uh, surreal, for one. And then I think the other takeaway for me was, 
certainly we had known the news by the time that press conference happened. We had known the news for over eight hours, right? So it had it registered for the most part. Sunk in. Yeah. Right. The question remained though. And the question was, okay, why? And and that was, I thought, something Jim Mersey struggled to articulate. I wanted to hear that. And he struggled to articulate it beyond saying, Well, Jeff is really tough and he's he was a great player and we love Jeff. Yes. We know that. Everyone knows that. Everyone agrees with that. He's great on TV. Uh, he was a great football player. I he certainly, I, I imagine, has contributed to the team in a in a you know demonstrable way uh, by being a consultant for the team, right? So, so this is none of that's in question. I think the question is why Jeff Saturday for this job. So as it was going on and on, I, I was hoping for that, and and you know I think we had to get a little more forceful with trying to nail him down on that particular point but uh, to your original question just taking it all in it, it was really surreal I, I mean here is Jim Mercer, Jeff Saturday and Chris Ballard sitting up there on this stage you know after the firing of Frank Reich just 10 hours 10 or 12 hours earlier and here's a new coach who no one saw coming I mean it's just look we have had some stuff here okay and you know because you've covered it all We've had Josh McDaniels bailing on the Colts 12 hours before his introductory press conference, okay? Now, it doesn't get more bizarre than that, but it did. So we thought it wouldn't. It did. Andrew Luck retired after a preseason game in August, right, in 2019. And now this. This one was, I don't know if, if we ranked them. I don't know where they rank, but this is pretty close to the top of anything I've ever seen in my 25 years. Really think about this. The Andrew Luck decision was really a shot out of the blue. Stunning. And, you know, I guess, I guess Andrew Luck retiring out of the blue is a little bit more stunning than Jeff Saturday being named the interim coach. But the fact that they're even in the same ballpark is amazing. Yes. Because when you when a when a franchise quarterback who you think is going to be your quarterback for the next 10 years, just after a, an exhibition game says, Oh, by the way, I'm retiring. And then, and then the other part of the weird thing is then he legitimately disappears, you know, and, and he has just uh, assumed this private persona out in the world that, you know, anyway, that's weird, but <laughs> yeah. I don't know. There's just something about this that it almost likes you. Ex it's almost like you expect this to come out of the jets or, or, or something. This is very jetsy. You know, <laughs> it's like if the jets said, Oh, we're hiring Joe Namath to succeed Robert Sala. You know, I mean, you know, but but there's there's one other thing that interested me. And and Stephen, this would probably be 49th on most people's list. But I know uh, Chris Ballard well. And I thought he was really a little bit overly defensive in that press conference for a team that is in absolute total free fall, uh, 
you know, it was just a little bit about him, which I thought was odd. Take me into Ballard, what you know about him, and why do you think he reacted in such a kind of a self-defensive way? That was Ballard, the South Texan. That's what you saw yesterday, right? Now, it does come out quite frequently, but I think I agree with you here that this was an odd time to really lean into that. Uh, this And it was my question, really, that I'm not taking credit for this, but I'm just recapping it. Uh, it was my question that kind of led to this because my, my question was, I thought, pretty obvious. Like, Chris, uh, Frank Reich might be gone, but you put this roster together. And, I mean, this is year six of Chris Ballard's tenure. And as I said to him, I said, this team is as far away as I've ever seen it. How do you explain this? And I thought he kind of oversimplified it by making it about the offensive line. Granted, the offensive line is awful, awful, epic, epically bad. That is true. But I, I think it's bigger than that, right? I mean, the state of this team is very worrisome to the fan base right now because there were a lot of expectations. And it's not just that they're not winning. It's that they are so far, they have fallen so far beyond or below i should say their expectations that's the thing yeah. here it, you know it's it's one thing to to fall short they look inept they look inept that there's no other way to put it and that people are having a hard time stomaching that so so i think that is the context that you're talking about as to why he went there i do think that he he definitely has felt a lot of frustration i had a brief conversation with him recently just about the state of things and he has been just absolutely stunned by by the state of the offensive line I mean I am too everybody is I, I didn't think they had a great offensive line just because they had a couple of big holes but I thought they were good enough elsewhere that it would be fine they were wrong I mean they could not have been more wrong uh, they they really have been stunned to see Quentin Nelson getting put on his rear end that I've just never seen that um, at this rate uh, Braden Smith, who's a very good right tackle, just hadn't been there this year. Ryan Kelly at center, who's made the Pro Bowl in the past. He looks terrible. I, I don't enjoy saying this. It, it's it's awful. So I think to give the con give some context to, to Chris Ballard's statements, I think here's, here's a guy who he felt like, okay, I went out and I got these young skilled position players. They feel like there's a pretty good group there. That is an over, overachieving group in their estimation. And then the one thing they didn't think they'd have to worry about is what has done them in. So I think it's almost a frustration, like, man, I, I thought I had this right and it fell apart. But that's not the fans' fault. That's not the media's fault. And I thought the optics of that were a little bit not the best, you know, because I think it, it yeah. came off as though he was sort of defensive toward criticism from those sources. What's your opinion of how Jeff Saturday did in the press conference and what's your opinion of how he will do when he first stands in front of his team on Wednesday? I thought Jeff came off fine. Jeff is, is smart. He understands what the criticisms are. They're not criticisms of Jeff Saturday, the person, <laughs> There are criticisms, or they're, they're not even criticisms, they're questions about Jeff Saturday, the coach. Because, right. of course, 
So I think he he did a good job, I think, of separating those things. He's pretty smart and savvy. Yeah. And and I thought he did a good job of, of being humble about this. And his quote was something like, look, I have no idea, you know, if I know, if this is going to work. He, and he kind of related it to his playing career, which was a, a guy who arrived in the NFL with no expectations, barely made it to the NFL and goes on and makes six Pro Bowls. So that was, I think, a good reference point. He said, look, I've kind of done this before in another realm as a player you know, with no expectations. So that's a good, I think, way of, of couching it and, and expressing some confidence without also saying, I got this, this will be no problem, right? So that yeah. was good. Um, and, and, and as far as him with the team, I, I think he's going to, I think he'll be relatable with the team. He's also smart enough, as I just said, to understand what their questions are going to be, the players. Because... <laughs> As he was asked yesterday, you know, what would Jeff Saturday, the TV analyst, say about this? And he said he gave a great answer. He said, oh, I'd probably think it was pretty crazy. So he has to know his players are probably thinking, wait, what? As much as they may be familiar with Jeff Saturday, because he's been around the team and continues to be there. They have no idea what's happening. They don't understand this. They don't understand the basis for this decision, because how could they? So he's going to have to go into it understanding that but i think he's gracious enough and smart enough that he will he will approach it the right way and then the rest of it is going to have to be up to him he's going to have to put in the work and show that he gets it he understands it he's going to have to put in a lot of face time with his leaders and and get his message across and and that has been i think that's one of the goals i'm rambling a little bit but that's one that was one of the the successes of frank reich was he really allowed his leaders to lead that locker room and and let them sort of spread his message. That, I think, is a good method here uh, for Jeff Saturday to also uh, employ. You know, at the basis of all this is that, obviously, since Andrew Luck retired, they just simply haven't gotten the quarterback right um, long term. I'm stunned at how Matt Ryan played. But I'm also surprised that Jeff Saturday's first act wasn't uh, Matt Ryan's going to get another shot. I, I, that really surprised me. It's not that I think Sam Ellinger's worthless. I think he was decent against Washington. And that was a game that probably the Colts should have won. But the thing that worries me about Ellinger and he's facing another good pass rushing team this week, you know, just like they saw in new England on Sunday, this is this, you know, he's going to feel some heat in Vegas. And I just don't know if he's good enough to overcome that. I mean, why do you think they didn't give the job back to Ryan to at least, just steady the ship for a while. Yeah, well, first I'll just I'll just piggyback on what you just said about pass rush with the young quarterback. I think what it what does pass rush do? It speeds you up, right? And and with a young quarterback, when you speed up a young quarterback, it is happening so fast for them. Look, Matt Ryan is is about as is about as mobile as this coffee mug on my desk here, right? But he can see it, he understands it, he knows where where to go with the ball 
pre-snap, all those things. They, they help. They really, really matter. And I get it. Look, he played awful, awful, indefensible. But I do think in adverse circumstances, there are some things that a, a veteran quarterback can tap into that that a young quarterback like Sam Ellinger is just not equipped to do. So as for why Sam Ellinger, why are they continuing down this road? I, I would say the question was, who's going to start on Sunday? And that answer was Sam Ellinger. Now, Matt Ryan hasn't practiced since he had that shoulder separation. We'll see what happens this week. I, I got to think he's close, at least to, to getting back on the field. And then what happens, happens. But we'll see if that remains true over the course of the season. I, I would say this, though, the fact that they are at least appearing to commit to, for the time being, Sam Ellinger, it reinforces for me that Jim Mercer was very much in favor of making this quarterback change. I have no indication that Frank Reich wanted to make that move. It, I have that both from sources and just looking at the situation uh, with my own two eyes. <laughs> I think Frank Reich went to great pains to say this was a collective decision, which I think is code for, yeah, I just work here. <laughs> so that's that's what I think this says. And I think there's enough evidence there to draw these these conclusions. The other thing I would say that reinforces that is when Frank Reich, or when the team announced the, the firing of Marcus Brady, their offensive coordinator last week, Frank Reich, as he should, took a very different approach to that. And he said, this was on me. This was my decision. He did not say anything about it being a collective decision, team decision, none of those things. So take that for what it's worth, right? So anyhow, with Ellinger, I do think that Jim Mercy has been smitten with the possibilities of Sam Ellinger. Is that because Sam Ellinger is a quarterback he really believes in, or is it because Sam Ellinger is just the other quarterback? I think it's a little bit of the latter. Jim Irsay is the Colts' number one fan. He's the owner, he's invested, but he's also, at, at his core, he's a fan, and he he just has a lot of fandom in him. It's not a bad thing. I just think you have to separate that sometimes from your acts as an owner. So we'll see how this, you know, plays out at quarterback. We'll close with this, Stephen Holder. Um, this surprised me a little bit about the quickness of this decision. And I understand Jim Irsay after watching an offensive coach, head coach, lead his team to 10, 16, and three points in the last three games. I understand him being fed up, but I also am curious, Jim Irsay is certainly not the wealthiest owner in the National Football League. And he, obviously, there's a gradations of wealth. Uh, and he's a very rich man. But compared to the Waltons, who own Denver, compared to David Tepper, who owns Carolina, Jim Irsay is not in their league. His wealth, basically, is from his team. And I'm curious. I don't know how much money you would think that Reich, when he got his contract extension, will just, I'll just guess that maybe he's getting extended for about $8 million a year, okay? He was extended through 2026. 
So conservatively, Jim Irsay probably owes Frank Reich $30 million. And yet he fired him in the middle of a season with four and a half years left. I think I'm right in saying this. 23, 24, 25, 26, plus the rest of this year. I'm just guessing it's got to be somewhere in that neighborhood of like 30 million, whatever it is. Is that, does that part of it surprise you in the least? A little bit. You're not wrong. And I think this is something that, that football fans may or may not really grasp, but you are absolutely correct. This is number one, a small market team. They can't tap into the, the same sorts of, you know, non-ticket revenue that Jerry Jones can, for example, you know, right. or, or the, the New York teams. And it, there is, there is, there is certainly socialism in the NFL, right? Revenue sharing and all that. That is certainly true, but there are other avenues that some teams can, can tap that, that others cannot, you just can't. Right. And the Colts are in the cannot category. Uh, this is, you know, we're in the Midwest, you know, there's a couple million people in the region. This is not, uh, this is, this is not the New York, New Jersey area. So you're absolutely right. That, that also, by the way, it, in Colts fans, I hope grasp this too. That also impacts how they operate in the off season too. Okay. Cash layout is a thing, right? I mean, when you're talking about these huge mega contracts you see being given to free agents, uh, there's a cash component there. And there's a budget, okay? They're a business. There's a budget. There's no question about it. So, so yes. Am I surprised or stunned? I guess that he that Jim Mercer did this given the financial consequences. No, but I do think they had to at least consider it and and consider the impact of that because it's very real. There's no doubt about it. It's very real. Um, and he just did this last year. Okay, just did it very recently. Yeah, and. And I tell you, I mean, you're going to have to either either Jeff Saturday is going to be your long term term coach. You're going to have to pay him uh, a decent salary or they go to someone else. And especially if they go this route, if they go out and, and conduct a real coaching search and go find someone who's in demand, that's going to be expensive. So it's a huge cash layout. And I I figured it had gotten to a point of no return just because the offensive returns were so indefensible. But that was the one thing that I, I wondered about. And it's also one of the reasons I, I wasn't certain that both Frank Reich and Chris Ballard would go because now you're doubling the cash layout. By the way, I know in this time of desperation, feeling on the bottom, nothing good is happening, all that. When I watch the Colts this year, there's two players I really like a lot. One is DeForest Buckner, who just every week does something to disrupt the offense. And the other is Alec Pierce. That is a really good player. And I'm not a big Michael Pittman guy, either downfield or I really question his hands. Uh, but this Alec Pierce long-term, he is a building block. And he might finally break the schneid of unimpactful receivers who they've drafted <laughs> there, you know? But yeah. I don't know. That just, that occurred to me. I knew I'd be talking to you. And I said, man, Buckner and Pierce, those guys are players. That's why when you think of the Colts, 
you don't think that the cupboard is absolutely empty. They've got a few good guys on that team. No, I, I love that you brought this up because you know, I talked to DeForest Buckner a lot, and, and he's one of the guys who right now I really feel for because yeah. he's on a defense actually that is very productive right now. They're, they're actually top 10 in a lot of the metrics they are they've had multiple games this year where they haven't allowed a touchdown i mean they're playing really really well and the forest buckner is is the guy who when offense turns the tape on you know before going into sunday and says oh my god it's gonna be a long day you know he just sees relentless he's relentless he plays just about more snaps than any defensive tackle in the game he just you know he's just he's just a force and alec pierce i'm glad you mentioned him real quick he is i think a guy, if they can ever get Jonathan Taylor going again, which obviously requires them to get their offensive line going, but if they ever get back to the play-action game, that guy is going to eat very well because he will go up and get it, and he is a very uh, receptive pupil, by the way, right now, of Reggie Wayne, receivers coach, who's doing a great job. Right. You know, I would just make this point about the – the Indianapolis Colts defense. If you think about it, okay, and you look at what happened in New England on Sunday, look at the Patriots' touchdown on Sunday, okay? Came on a blocked punt, and it it basically ended with a two-yard drive for a touchdown, okay? And and look, I, I, I'm not I'm not saying that that it's uh, some utterly absolutely preposterous uh, thing here, but okay. So so there's that, and then the other touchdown they score is on an interception return. So the Indianapolis Colts in Foxborough allowed four field goal drives. And lost a game 26 to 3 that anybody who didn't watch the game wouldn't really understand. Well, let, let's let's really think about this. You held the New England Patriots to 203 yards. And so, and that's what I say. Whenever you look at a team and you say, oh my God, all hope is lost, you know what? It's usually not lost. It's usually just misplaced. And right now, that hope with the Colts, I if I'm Jeff Saturday, I say, oh, my God, this is a debacle. This is this. And then you sit down and actually watch the game, and you say, you know what? We are going to give the Las Vegas Raiders one hell of a football game on Sunday. That's just kind of what I think. No, and I, there's a basis for that, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you got to score points, and that's why they are where they are. They haven't done it. There's no, there's no real mystery to that, right? But there's no question they have been a tough out just because of their defense. I mean, you know, ask any of the quarterbacks they've played this year. You know, Patrick Mahomes, Russell Wilson. Uh, look, they allowed 17 points the previous week and lost to Washington, right? So, I mean, they yeah. have they have consistently been a tough tough out with a couple of exceptions because of their defense it really just goes to show you how fundamental uh passing games your quarterback and and up front on the offensive line they're so fundamental to success 
you you don't have that and it kind of doesn't matter what else you have that's where the Colts are but but they're not an easy out because of their defense and by the way the other guy I want to mention or two guys Stephon Gilmore has found the fountain of youth that guy's playing well at 32 years old uh, new respect for that guy and then Grover Stewart one of the most fun nose tackles to watch in the entire NFL because who watches nose tackles that's a great great point you know I'll I'll end with this they're the fifth rated defense that'll go into Vegas this week and look you think about okay what t- what what defenses out there are really really great and and you look at some of the ones that have played very very well so far and I noticed this I was looking yesterday at the stats the Indianapolis Colts are allowing 20.3 points per game the Tennessee Titans who everybody think you know, and look, all praise to Mike Vrabel and that that staff. They've done a great job. They're allowing one half of a point less than the Indianapolis Colts. This, this is, I'm just telling you, I don't think this is going to be a debacle down the stretch. And I don't think it is because of the defense they play. Anyway, Stephen Holder, thanks so much for joining me. You're very educational uh and thanks for telling and showing and letting my listeners hear exactly what the pulse is in indianapolis so thanks a lot Uh, you got it anytime peter very interesting stuff from stephen holder and we thank him for joining the podcast this week and trying to bring some sense to nonsense let's spend the second half of our podcast miles talking about the other 31 teams, even though we're in a week where it feels like all 31 are going to get short shrift, you know, because of what happened in Indianapolis. And I want to start with what we saw Monday night with the Baltimore Ravens. A couple of things that really were impressive about that game. The most impressive thing to me is that you lose your most important offensive player. Mark Andrews, who's out of the game with shoulder and knee injuries, he misses. So what does Lamar Jackson do? He says, hey, no problem. I've got Isaiah Likely. Now, America is just getting to know who this guy is, this wide receiver, tight end, hybrid, fourth round pick from Coastal Carolina. Uh, So Isaiah Likely comes through first touchdown of the game in the impressive win at, at New Orleans. Uh, so there's that. And then they also lose Rashad Bateman, their most important wide receiver for the year. And so I was impressed with how Lamar Jackson made it pretty seamless and said, okay, we'll use Kenyon Drake until he goes out with a hammy. We'll lose, we'll use Deshaun Jackson and we will figure a way. That was number one. But number two, how about this Justin Houston? Yeah. This guy is 94 years old. He's had three consecutive multi-sack games. And when Eric DaCosta, the general manager of the of the Ravens, signed him, he was he was almost embarrassed of what he could offer him. They had no cap money, uh, no no money left. And basically they paid him dirt cheap to come in. And he has been the most valuable person on that front seven for the Ravens. So Hey, look, Ravens six and three, really impressive. Your thoughts. 
Well, and, and, you know, you think about adding Roquan Smith also to that defense and then how much better that can make them there. But I think the point you make about Isaiah likely is great. I mean, those guys were talking him up a lot during the preseason and he did have an impressive preseason, but it's still preseason football, right? But then he goes out there last week, has a touchdown against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and now you're seeing what he can really bring to that offense in Mark Andrews' stead. And so whenever Mark Andrews comes back, you then have both of those guys, and they could potentially be out there at the same time. It makes things that much tougher for defenses. So I like where the Ravens are. I mean, I've thought basically going back to the preseason that the Ravens are good enough to win that division if they stay healthy. I mean, that was one of the things that just killed them last year was all of the injuries, including to Lamar Jackson. And they were still pretty competitive down the stretch um, with Tyler Huntley at quarterback still. So now that they have all those different guys back, obviously losing Bateman is a huge loss for the rest of the season. But if Lamar Jackson continues to play at a high level, they should win the AFC North. It's not a guarantee. I mean, the Cincinnati's certainly going to have something to say about it. But I like where the Baltimore Ravens are at. And I think, you know, yesterday going to what was a good win, you know, you were able to make sure you're not giving up that lead in the fourth quarter. The Ravens seem like they're on pretty solid ground right now. Josh Allen, the Bills quarterback, as we record this this morning, uh, is being evaluated, according to Chris Mortensen, for an injury to the ulnar collateral ligament in his elbow and you saw it after he was sacked by Bryce Huff of the Jets the strip sack you know it was an awkward motion and look at me trying to throw an invisible football (laughs) right here on this podcast but it was an awkward motion where in the middle of his motion he got his arm grabbed and wrenched by Bryce Huff of the Jets and You could see him after that. He was flexing his arm, you know, trying to open and close his his hand a few times. And clearly he was in some discomfort. And so now I I will only make one point about how, uh, how, look, this would be awful for this team if they lost Josh Allen for any length of time. But I will say this. I do think Case Keenum, and look, cue the laugh track from everybody when I mention Case Keenum. I really like Case Keenum's ability to come in and potentially, if he has to play, play well. And I go back to his time in Minnesota uh, with Stephon Diggs when he was really uh, a force for good in that season with Minnesota. But we'll see. I think... I think the Bills are just a little bit, even if Josh Allen does play and he's okay, I think it's going to be difficult for the Bills to sort of regain their stature atop the NFL after we've seen a few warts, particularly on that offensive line. Yeah, and you know, them not having a run game is still a significant factor. I mean, I I don't laugh at you when you say what you said about Case Keenum. I mean, I was around him in 2015-2016 with the Rams and his demeanor that can have him go in there and just kind of settle things down, play with sometimes a little bit of reckless abandon, but as he's gained more experience, he knows what he's good at 
And I think if he has to be in there for, as a short-term starter, right, maybe fill in for two, three games, the, the Bills are going to be okay. Now, he's already got that chemistry with Stephon Diggs. I mean, they were together in Minnesota. They created the Minneapolis miracle together. That was one of the best things we've ever seen in the NFL in a playoff game, right? So I think that they'll be okay if Case Keenum has to come in for a game or two or three. If it's any longer than that, it's obviously a disaster. Right. And the NFC, the NFC, the AFC East has a lot of good teams. And right now, three of those teams have six wins. All right. In the, in the bills and the dolphins and the jets and you know, the Patriots have five. So it's not like the bills are just going to run away with this thing in the AFC East. At least I don't think so at this point, but you know, if, if Josh Allen has to miss any time, that's going to be significant. It is going to be significant. Um, Mike McCarthy and the Dallas Cowboys go to Green Bay. It's the first Dallas Green Bay game in three years. Um, just going to go back in time a little bit. I went to Green Bay in Mike McCarthy, let's call it his gap year, 2019, when he was uh, trying to rehab his image as a coach and get ready for his next job. Uh and obviously, um, it, it, you know, he did and he rehabbed his image and now the Cowboys appear to be on the right track. The one story I remember from that, I was in Mike McCarthy's pickup truck. We were going to dinner in Green Bay and we passed Lambeau Field. And Mike McCarthy says, man, it still hits me right here. Mm. And he did not strike me in any way as a bitter man that he got fired because it had been at that point, you know, quite a while, sure. you know, he, you know, since he got fired. But what was interesting to me is what he said. He goes, you know, because if you, if you haven't been to green Bay in the last two or three years, you don't, you don't really know what I'm talking about, but I'm going to try to describe it. The whole area around Lambeau field and Lambeau field itself looks like, an incredibly modern, wonderful urban development. There's a great place called Titletown, mm -hmm. um, you know, right across the street from Lambeau Field that has a fantastic brew pub, a beautiful hotel called Lodge Kohler, uh, some great shops, shopping area. And, and it just is really grown up and built so well around uh, Lambeau Field. And Mike McCarthy told me, I went and I told my players, they, there's nothing but construction happening here over the last six, seven years. And I told them, you guys are responsible for that. You guys have played so well and made this such a hot place. And you should be uh, grateful, thankful, and understand that generations of Packer fans are going to look back at this time, at the time where they really rebuilt the stadium and the franchise. And it's all because of the success that you guys are a part of. And so I think he just feels like his 13 years there, the reason he's not bitter about it is that, you know, he feels like he has really contributed, maybe not as much as Curly Lambeau, but he feels he's really contributed to this franchise an awful lot uh, for a coach who got fired. And at the end, it was pretty ugly for him. You, you can't write the story of the Green Bay Packers without Mike McCarthy. I mean, it, it just, when you win a Super Bowl, 
you etch your name into the history of a franchise. And, you know, there is a Mike McCarthy way in Green Bay yeah. because he won a Super Bowl there. So, I mean, I, I, I think that's awesome that he feels so much gratitude for it. And frankly, the community should feel gratitude toward him, too. I mean, it did not end well, but I mean, rarely does it ever end well for an NFL head coach. Yeah. And, you know, so, I mean, it's, it's interesting that it's been this long since Dallas and Green Bay have played one another because it seemed like for years there, I mean, they were always right. playing each other, right? So this is certainly probably going to be an emotional trip for him in some way, and that's something that you've got to be able to set aside and then go out there and try to win a football game. But I, I think that they should do it. I mean, I don't think that there's any question right now that Dallas is a better football team going into this week than we would call the Green Bay Packers. So maybe the Green Bay Packers get right against their former head coach, but I don't know. The New York Jets, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts from afar about the Jets. I'm sort of in the belly of the beast as I record this <laughs> in my home in Brooklyn. And the Jets, Robert Sala, when he showed up, he basically decided that the way to get this team most competitive the earliest is to build a great defense, which is what he knew so well. That defense, Miles, you know, there's an old saying, defense travels. In other words, if you play a road game, you know, uh, you're still going to be really, really impressive on defense. That defense is good enough to play anybody in this league a really, really tough four-quarter game. What do you think of the Jets? Well, I, I like the way they play. I like the attitude that Robert Saul has implemented. And it's funny, you know, we think about a few weeks ago, which, I mean, it keeps getting longer away, where Saul has said he's keeping receipts. And it's yeah. like, okay, well, I guess you might have had a point, sir. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm a little sorry because what, the way they play – is really, really conducive to the team that they've built, right? And, and, you know, you talk about Zach Wilson and what he did against New England versus what he was able to do against Buffalo. Sometimes you've got to remember that as a quarterback, one of your first jobs is protecting the football. That's something that they were able to do against the Bills and they didn't lose the game for them because that's how good that defense is, right? You don't need your quarterback to do too much because they're that good. Right? They can produce takeaways for you. They can get you in a good position to be able to go down the field and score. So if you're the, if you're Zach Wilson, that's an asset for you. You know, take the layups, as Chris Ballard once said about Carson Wentz. Now, don't try to do too much. And I know Zach Wilson talked about, you know, I get frustrated when I get out of the pocket and then there's not a play and then I'm trying to do like, no, 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 dude. Just make sure that you're taking care of the football because that defense is going to be able to take care of you in turn. The New York Jets have won five out of six. And in those six games, the New York Jets basically have been, by any measure, one of the best defenses in football. And in those six games, they haven't allowed more than 22 points in any game. And look, they allowed 22 points to the Patriots, but basically Zach Wilson handed them about 21 and a half, yeah. you know, in that game. Yeah. But but anyway, this is a very interesting team to watch. Uh, and I think it's going to be fun. Let's, for a moment, 
look at the Minnesota Vikings. And speaking of, you know, teams that are hot and teams that have played well in recent weeks, you know, let's talk about the Vikings who basically since losing 24 to seven in week two to the Philadelphia Eagles have won six in a row. The only issue is all six wins have been one score games. And I don't think any of us truly know how good this team is. Their average margin of victory in those six games is five and a half points. So do you think the Vikings are real or are they a mirage? I think they're real in part because I don't know how many real teams there are otherwise. I mean, most of them, I think, are especially in that conference, right? Most of them are in the NFC East. You know, the Eagles, Cowboys believe in, believe in the Giants a little bit too, just based on the way that they've played under Dayball. Um, but, you know, you look around the rest of the NFC and it's kind of like, okay, Seattle, yeah, I think they seem pretty real. San Francisco, you anticipate that once they get healthy and they are, that they will play better, but especially in the NFC North. I mean, ugh, you know, yeah. you know, Green Bay, my goodness, what's going on? You know, Chicago, they're starting to get them find themselves a little bit. I mean, the way Justin Fields is playing, whenever you get 178 rushing yards, that's finding something. Detroit, come on. I mean, I'm sorry, Dan Campbell. I love you. I, I love Brad Holmes too, but you know, they you got to start winning more football games, right? So I think by default, the Minnesota Vikings seem like a good playoff team. Now, whether they will be the two seed or otherwise, I don't know yet. I mean, I, I think that they certainly have more things to prove, but as far as just being able to get wins, when you are able to win those close games, I think that means something, you know? So they, I, they're going to win that division by six games. Yeah. I, you know, just nobody else. And look, Chicago, Chicago's going to finish in second place. You know, like they're it. a really, really interesting team right now. Okay. Miles. Are the Philadelphia Eagles at 8-0 the best team in football today? Yes, and not just because of the record. I mean, we keep talking about most complete, most complete, most the I, I, I honestly, I, I think that that's actually true. I mean, they, they play a style that is conducive to their talent, right? And they know how to win in different ways. So I think because they can rush with four, because Jalen Hurts is playing really, really well, because he can do it with his arm, also with his legs, and they've got A.J. Brown, they've got Devontae Smith, and they've got Miles Sanders, and they've got all these different guys. You know, their offensive line's playing really well, led by Jason Kelsey. I, I feel good about them being the best team in football. Yeah, I would agree with you right now, and the biggest reason is that, look, it's, uh, you know, what's crazy about the Eagles is that, you know, they have now played seven consecutive games without without allowing more than 21 points. And they can beat you running easily mm -hmm. as well as they can beat you throwing. Miles Sanders, 5.0 yards a carry, uh, is a terrific back. Uh, as long as he stays healthy, uh, they got a nice backup in Kenneth Gainwell. Hertz runs it well. Yep. This is a team that doesn't have a lot of holes. Miles, want to I want to I want to end with just your thoughts on what we see in the Miami Dolphins and their re receiving core, and particular Tyreek Hill, um, who you know, and again, you can say a lot of things about on pace and all that stuff, but Tyreek Hill, right now, uh, here we are at the season's midpoint, okay, and after nine games. 
He's got 1,104 yards receiving, and he's on pace, obviously, to surpass 2,000 yards. What are you seeing in Hill? Why do you think he's having a better year now than he had with Patrick Mahomes in Kansas City? Some of it, I think, is scheme. Um, and the way that Mike McDaniels utilizing Tyreek Hill is a little bit different than what we saw in Kansas City. And you know, in Kansas City, it was Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey. And there were sort of different elements to that. And you knew that those were the go-to guys, right? I mean, when there's 13 seconds left and the Chiefs have the football against the Buffalo Bills, you know it's going to Travis Kelsey and or Tyreek Hill. And the, both of those guys get catches and they send that thing into overtime and end up winning. But now it's a little bit different in part because Jalen Waddell and Tyreek Hill kind of have similar skill sets, but not quite, right? And, and I think that Mike McDaniel has implemented an offense that is so much based on speed and so much based on the fact that they know that they can get Tyreek Hill the ball in pretty much any situation, and he's able to do something with it, whether it's you know going up in the air and making a contested catch or catching it and running it as only he can with his speed. So I love that. I love that it's not just that, you know, he's on pace to do what he's doing, right? But he's already had more yards through nine games than any other player in NFL history. I mean, Isaac Bruce for the Rams in 1995 had, excuse me, 1,073. He's got 1,104 through nine games. So I mean, he's on pace for 2,085, which would uh, break Calvin Johnson's single season record in 2012. But you know what? If he gets more than 122.75 yards per game, okay, that was the pace of Calvin Johnson back in 2012. So if he averages more than that, then he's going to not just break the record, but he's going to break the average that Calvin Johnson had. I think yeah. it's not just possible, but it could be likely. I mean, he is going out there every single week and just dominating defenses. And man, whether it's just scheme, talent, combination of the two, he's really putting together a magnificent season. The amazing thing is he's on pace for to surpass 2,000. Jalen Waddell is on pace to surpass 1,500. So it's really an incredible year and good for Miami, good for Tua Tonga-Valoa, uh, really proving that he deserves to be the long-term quarterback in, Indiana, in uh, Miami. Excuse me. Andy on the Miles, brain. thanks so much for uh, for joining me. We also thank our guest, Stephen Holder, uh, for another edition of the Peter King Podcast presented by Salesforce. We'll be back next week, and I'm on my way to Germany this week to see the first NFL regular season game there. So I'm going to inundate you with everything I've learned. So get ready for some German lessons next week. I'm sure I'll be fluent by the time we record the pod next week. For Miles Simmons, I'm Peter King, and this has been the Peter King Podcast, presented by Salesforce.